the story we're going to read today is about a subgroup of believers in Israel known as the Rechabites. And so it's about a group of God worshipers who is living um, in an urban context, and they have maintained for, for many years their cultural and religious identity in spite of the challenges posed by living in that urban context. And so that seems very relevant to me uh, for, for any church. And this particular group, known as the Rechabites, is, is a, an extended family, not just metaphorically, like an actual literal family that has grown. And they've done such a good job sticking to their beliefs, maintaining their identity as what we could call an enclave community, a, a community within a community. They've done such a good job remaining who they are that Jeremiah uses them as their picture of obedience. He basically says, look at this group, this is the ideal. And so I just sense that we have so much to learn. Um, what are they doing right? What have they done right? What can we learn from them? A couple of things before we read this long passage, as you can see in your bulletin, uh, it's a full page. It's a, th a full chapter, actually. Um, but as you might know, Jeremiah was not popular, the prophet Jeremiah, and that's not unusual. Most of the prophets had an unpopular message to deliver, and Jeremiah was no exception. You might be familiar with the history of the kings of Israel, and it's a, it's a sad, actually kind of depressing story if you read starting in like 2 Samuel through the end of 2 Kings, and you can look at Chronicles too. Um, but something like, I'm just going to guess, like 95% of the kings are bad, like really bad. In fact, they get so bad that God says, okay, good, now you're worse than the people that you drove out. Like they weren't even doing this, which is really bad. Uh, but you did have a couple of bright spots. There were maybe three kings that did things right, but most of them instituted worship of foreign gods and idol worship and did weird sacrificial things and all kinds of things. So you can imagine that when the prophets um, did their ministry that they weren't always very well received. They weren't very popular or well liked. But even Jeremiah among them is unique because the passage we're going to read takes place under the reign of King Jehoiakim who was a bad one. But Jehoiakim's father, Josiah, was not. He was a great king. And it was under Josiah that maybe you know that um, some priests cleaning the temple discovered a temple scroll, a Torah scroll. And they brought it <clears throat> to Jeremiah, or they brought it to the king, Josiah, and they read it. And Josiah, apparently this was all news to him, uh, said, wow, we've got to change. And so he did. He destroyed the uh, idol worship. They reinstituted temple worship. Everything was awesome. That's a, that's a song, isn't it? Everything is awesome. I didn't mean to say that, actually. But it was. In uh, Jerusalem, everything was great, uh, once again, in terms of faithfulness to God. And so as an outsider, you would say, yay, you know, they're, they're doing it right. Against all odds, things are going in the right direction. Except for the fact that Jeremiah was standing outside the temple, even under the reign of Josiah, saying to people coming into the temple, do not depend on this place. It's still going to be destroyed. So even, even when, th now that's, that's a way to be unpopular. Even when things are going the way they should be, Jeremiah is saying, no, it's not going to last. And that was in the late 600s. And of course, you might know in 613 and then again in 
the 590s and finally in 586, the temple was totally destroyed. In that context, we have, in this culture, we, I think we can call it a culture of disobedience, we have this small group of people. And it's a beautiful story because their obedience is beautiful. And in this culture of dis- disobedience, we have the story of the Rechabites. Okay, that's enough introduction. Let's take a look here at the passage. You'll see it on the screen, and you'll also see it in the bulletin. And let's see. I'm going to read it off of the screen because I left my bulletin, and I want to make sure I read the ESV. So let's read. The word of the Lord that came to uh, Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them, and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers. Then offer them wine to drink. So I took um, Jaazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habaziniah, and his brothers and all of his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them to the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdalia, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, above the chamber of Maaseah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the threshold. Okay, so briefly before we continue, when you see a lot of hard to pronounce names like that, a lot of times the author is nailing down the story. He's saying, these people are still alive, so you can go confirm with them that this all took place. And so the more details you see, the more it's like, now this isn't like a metaphorical thing, this isn't a made up story, this is a literal event, and here's where it happened, and here's who was involved. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers uh, full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. But they answered, we will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, Uh, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came up against the land, we said, come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we are living in Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord. The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, turn now, every one of you from his evil way, and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to serve them, and then you shall dwell in the land that I gave you and your fathers, but you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them. Because I have spoken to them and they have not listened, I have called to them and they have not answered. But the house of the Rechabites 
Jeremiah, to the house of uh, the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack to have a man to stand before me. And before we get into a couple of points here, let's pray. Father God, we're reminded today uh, that obedience is beautiful. And uh, just as we've had uh, a beautiful time of worship today, we're reminded that we don't sing ourselves, we don't praise ourselves, we have something much greater in you to extol. And when a community comes together and together says, this is our priority, we together look to the Lord, to his son Jesus, um, that's a beautiful thing, it's a winsome thing. I pray for this church that they would continue to hold the truth in all of its beauty. And uh, may we learn today from your word together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A couple of things, and then we're just going to make three points and, uh, about obedience. And I don't call them lessons on obedience. I chose the word meditation because there's nothing new today, I don't think. I doubt that anyone is going to leave and, and say, I never, had, I never knew I was supposed to do that thing. But sometimes we need to be reminded of things that we already know or maybe have forgotten or just to be encouraged. And so these are going to be meditations. And before we get there, um, the beginning of Jeremiah 35, we have something called like it, uh, an obedience formula. And the obedience formula goes something like this. You see the words, the word of the Lord came, or some variant of that, which in Jeremiah is something like 40 times, 50 times. And then you have the person that it was commanded to carry it out. Hundreds of times in the Bible you see this. The first one, one of the first ones I can think of is the building of the temple, which is a really, really long example, the building of the tabernacle. You know, uh, in Exodus uh, like 24 to 30 something, uh, it says, make all of the temple thing, uh, tabernacle things this way. And then all of the chapters following, it's almost in the same order, them making them all in that way. And that might seem odd to us because we could sum it up with, and they did all of those things, right? One verse, and then you'd only have, you know, 27 chapters or whatever. In the whole book of Exodus, instead, we have 40. Um, but we see this over and over in the Old Testament. And I think we have a modern version of this. Um, we have this um, Echo, Amazon Echo, like an Alexa in our apartment that my, I don't use much, but my wife talks to it quite often. And she'll say, um, Alexa, and it lights up, put Oreos on my shopping list. And what does Alexa say? Oreos have been added to your shopping list. You know, it's just a confirmation. Well, that's essentially the obedience formula. God says, do it, and then you have a record of that being done. And we see that several times. In the case of the Rechabites, um, we see the obedience formula as well, so that in this passage, it's not just the prophet who's doing just exactly what the Lord says, it's his example that is as well. Also, we have, and hopefully this stood out to you, these interesting commands that the Rechabites are to follow. Do not drink wine, do not plant vineyards, do not build. And what ties these things together is a nomadic lifestyle. Um, so none of these things was prohibited in general for all Israelites. But what ties them together is that um, their forefather had commended to them not a settled rootedness in the land. And um, 
you, you, you notice that those things, for example, um, the fear, I'm sure, is that if they started to drink wine, they would settle in a spot because what do you have to do to make wine? You have to have a vineyard. You have to stay there for the full season. You have to have, I don't know what you would have to have, but you would have to have lots of implements to make the wine and things like that. And so if they start to drink wine, they're going to commit to a rootedness. But this is a nomadic tribe. In other words, they're not to have a sense of rootedness in the land. They're to trust God and travel. But the point isn't these things. Surely the point isn't don't live in a house, modern-day Christians, even though most of you aren't, (laughs) probably, like us, like living in an apartment. But the point isn't, you know, houses are bad. The point is, look at these commands and look at the fact that the Rechabites did these things. Last thing, and then we'll look at our three meditations. Object lessons are used very often by the prophets. So Hosea is told to marry like a prostitute at one point. Uh, And another one, Jeremiah is told to make bread a certain way. In fact, you can go to, I think, Zabar's and find the same recipe for the bread Jeremiah was, it's like the Jeremiah bread. Uh, sometimes they're told to sleep outside in unusual place. In other words, God as the master teacher was exhorting his prophets, do, it, do this, and here is the lesson, and people will remember it, because it's not just words, it's an object lesson. The difference here, and I think this is the only time this happens, the object lesson is first for Jeremiah. So notice that God says, go get the uh, Rechabites, call them in, and God doesn't tell them what the punchline is going to be. And when they refuse the wine, God says, here's the take home, Jeremiah. And then Jeremiah takes that to the people. And so we have, and by the way, Jesus, as you might know, uses object lessons all the time, physical object lessons in words. So my question, what does it take to maintain an enclave community in an urban setting? It's one thing to move into the middle of nowhere and to maintain a group identity like the movie, well, actually one of my favorite movies, The Village, Uh, which is an older movie now, but that's what they do. They move into the middle of nowhere. They put up a fence and they have, you know, I guess the wood sort of is the fence and their community can't be touched by the outside. But this group has moved into Jerusalem. What does it take to maintain group identity around your faith in God? Because I think that's what Christianity is in New York. It's, you think of um, the hundreds of churches as enclave communities, sub-communities, then I think there are some good lessons for us. And my first meditation on obedience is that it may be unheralded, by which I mean it may not be noticed or praised. Obedience, first of all, might be unheralded. And why? I think it might be often unheralded because it may look unenlightened. And nobody wants to seem unenlightened, especially in New York. But I found three passages that speak to this issue. Listen to what these passages have to say about the simplicity of the gospel message. And listen for the words foolishness and simplicity. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for those of us being saved, it is the power of God in 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. 
Then lastly, and I think this is my favorite of the three, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I'm worried lest as the serpent deceived Eve, you may be led astray from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. You know, both simplicity and complexity can be tools of the enemy. And in a sense, the gospel is both. It's simple in some ways, but it's also complex. Now, of course, there are those whose understanding of the gospel is simplistic. It's reductionistic and overly simplified. But I think in New York, we're probably more prone to go the other direction and to think in terms of greater complexity. Um, Being led astray from the devotion, simplicity, simplicity of devotion to Christ, how does that look? Perhaps we're prone to rationalize disobedience where the will of God is actually clear, but we've become good rationalizers. Or to see as sort of pedestrian and moralistic obedience to clear commands. So Paul says, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, think on these things. In our culture, following Paul's admonition here may seem unenlightened. And in a similar way, it's quite possible that in the, uh, you know, Jerusalem wasn't the great city of the ancient world at this time. You had Rome and Alexandria and earlier Athens, but Jerusalem was the biggest city in Israel at least. And it's quite possible that a group like the Rechabites, I was trying to think of, is there a group similar to that in our culture today? And oddly enough, I think it, we, we do have that. Um, I think the Amish, actually. I think the Amish are a good example. It's a subgroup of Christianity. They sort of have their own set of rules that aren't really handed down by God, but they've sort of adopted them anyway. And don't worry, I'm not saying everybody should go become Amish <laughs> at all. Um, but if you want to think about how, um, I think most people, when they, when they you know, see an Amish family, unfortunately, they may think, well, unenlightened, okay? And I think probably that is how the Rechabites seemed to the people of Jerusalem. Secondly, it may be unheralded, that is obedience, because it may be anonymous. Obedience may be anonymous. Remember, Jeremiah does not know of the Rechabites, even though they're living in Jerusalem. God has to say, go find these people and tell them this. He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know what they stand for. God has to draw his, uh, Jeremiah's attention to them. But in the Bible, anonymity can be a beautiful thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about the virtue of anonymity. I think it actually is a thing, though. If you think about Matthew 6, Jesus commends anonymous behavior in several forms, and I won't read all of them, but he commends anonymous fasting with these words. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting but only to your father who is unseen, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. says that about uh, Matthew 6, about several other Christian practices as well. It's human nature to seek recognition for acts of obedience. And if you're anything like me, when you, you know, resist the temptation to do something and you obey or you do something great for somebody else, you want 
that recognition. But we should actually seek anonymity and prize anonymity. Allow God to bring about, don't fight the recognition, I guess, if it's there. But in a sense, the more anonymous, the better. And I just remembered an article by uh, Dr. Lee, as I think some of you know, and he actually wrote an article for Christianity Today last month about anonymity in uh, a culture of social media. I think that might be the title, Anonymity in a Culture of Social Media, something like that. Really good article, and it was something I hadn't thought about before, but we see that here. Um, sometimes uh, obedience is unheralded because it's anonymous, and yet its anonymity should be cause us to pursue it rather than to avoid it. And lastly, it may be unheralded because it seems too easy. And in a sense, maybe the Rechabites, what they're doing um, seems too easy to be, I mean, can, can the God of the universe really be giving his stamp of approval to something that just sort, sort of seems big and obvious and not very complex and um, simplistic? And the answer is yes. And I'm not sure what God may be convicting you with this week, but maybe you've wondered before about the question, is it easy or hard to be a Christian? Is it easy or hard to be good? And if you've ever wondered that, you're not the first. Actually, um, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, wrote a whole um, like speech or address on this question, is Christianity hard or easy? And as if you're familiar with him, as you might expect, he says, yes, both. And here is how he explains it. He says, being good is easy for those who do it. He writes, the Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your um, time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth and crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own shall become yours, both harder and easier than what we're all trying to do. You've noticed I expect that Christ himself sometimes describes the Christian way as very hard and sometimes very easy. He says, take up your cross. In other words, it's like going to be beaten to death in a concentration camp. Next minute, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He means both. And one can see why both are true. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ, but it is far easier to do that than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep our personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time be good. We are all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. As he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. 
And so obedience must, uh, may often be unheralded, it may seem unenlightened, it may seem anonymous, it may seem easy, and as we see, it is, in fact, easy and hard at the same time. Second, and these second and third points will actually be much shorter, uh, but secondly, obedience doesn't just hear, it listens. Obedience doesn't just hear, it listens. And lest you think I'm splitting hairs, I say this often to my kids, uh, because early I noticed that sometimes what can happen is you ask your kids or tell your kids to do something, and then 10 minutes later it doesn't happen. And when you you know, confront them about it, they'll say, well, I didn't hear you. I didn't hear. So as a parent, it's like, oh, well, what do I do? You know, I can't discipline if they didn't hear. So it's kind of, it's a really brilliant answer for on the kid's part, I guess. Um, but what I started saying then was, no, you did hear. You didn't listen. And what I meant by that was the sound waves left my mouth. And science, the laws of science didn't stop, right, for a minute. The laws of science held their course. And the sound waves hit your eardrum and sound registered your brain. What do people often say? My kids don't listen to me, you know? Uh, and what they mean isn't that, you know, the sound waves aren't working. They mean that when they use that word listen rather than hear, what they mean is that my kids aren't heeding the words that I say. That's kind of what listening has come to mean. Well, look at verse eight. In the obedience formula, the sort of representative of the Rechabites says, you know, we have um, received this command from Jonadab, son of Rechab, and then it says, I can't remember what the ESV is, but in my translation it says, we have obeyed. But if you look at that word in Hebrew, it isn't a special word, it's just here. And you actually probably know this word, it's Shema, um, because if you know the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the, the Lord is one. It's the most famous verse for Jews and one famous one for Christians as well. It's called the Shema, the Shema prayer. And that word Shema is here. That's exactly the word that we have in 35.8. So even though it says we have obeyed, what they're really saying is, and we have heard the voice of Jonadab, son of Rechab. In other words, in the Hebrew mind, there is no space between hear and obey. And we have that space. It's possible for me in our thinking to hear what somebody says they want me to do and then to disobey that. But in the Bible, to hear is to obey. Now, here's what this truth brings to mind for me. In the New Testament book of James, in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, James exhorts his um, audience, do not merely listen to the word, do not just hear, but do what it says. He says, somebody who hears the word of God and does not put into practice is like somebody, and we have lots of mirrors here, so we, this works, right? Uh, it's like somebody who looks into a mirror and then walks away and forgets what they look like. So, on the surface, the point seems to be too obvious. So you're saying when you hear something, do it. But here's where I think it matters. Our culture, I think more than any other culture, has equated, equated good intentions with real obedience. In other words, what may matter oftentimes, if we're not careful, is that my good intentions can stand in for actual obedience. And James actually deals with that too. He says, what good is it if you say to somebody who is you know, in need, go and be warm and well-fed. 
and then you don't do anything about it. Well, why does a person say those words if they're not going to do anything? You ever thought about that? I mean, it's such a contradiction. But his point is that it's possible to adopt a brand of Christianity that's all about intentions and is devoid of action. And if our need to be obedient people is being fulfilled by feeling good about that we're thinking rightly about something, about our knowledge of the Bible or about our words that are on the right track, but not our actions, and we're not following what the Rechabites do and what makes them distinct and what keeps them as a community. So beware the danger of good intentions replacing true obedience. And thirdly, and we'll end with this point, obedience brings lavish blessing. Obedience brings lavish blessing. Look again at the way our passage ends. Again, Jeremiah levels this uh, object lesson uh, that he has seen played out for him. And God says, here is your take home, Jeremiah. You've seen the Rechabites now. You've seen their behavior. You've seen their obedience. And there are two take homes. There's a blessing and there's a curse. And the curse comes first. Again, in verse 17, it says, Behold, I will bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. And I have called to them, but they have not answered. There's the curse. So in other words, somebody's obeying. It can be done. Look, Jerusalem, here's a group that's actually doing what their forefather said. They stand in condemnation of you because you have not done what I said. But he doesn't just end with a curse, he ends with a blessing for the Rechabites who did do what their forefather said. So notice, even though it's not that the Rechabites are obeying God, but they're obeying their forefather, so they're commended for fidelity. They're commended for faithfulness, for obedience to somebody. And notice the lavishness of the blessing. He says, and Jeremiah says to the house of the Rechabites, verse 18, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Now, just on the surface, that's lavish. That God would say, because you just obeyed somebody, your forefather, because you are a picture of obedience and fidelity, you will never lack to have a man stand before me. That's lavish enough. But if you've been reading it all in Jeremiah, the wording is striking. And here's what the words actually say. If you're, It doesn't work in English, but the word is, son of Rechab, it shall not be cut off to Rechab. The, word, the verb there is cut off. It shall not be cut off to Rechab to have a man stand before me. And the reason that matters is that is consistently the words God uses in promising David that there will be an eternal ruler on the throne of Judah from the Davidic line. In other words, you remember the Davidic covenant after Saul, that swing and a miss, Benjamite, God says, I'm establishing a new line through David, and God's promise to David is, you will forever have a descendant reigning on the throne. May seem like a rhetorical flourish to David, like the world can't last forever, can it? But of course, now we know that isn't just hyperbole because in Jesus Christ 
the true son, great, 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 great grandson of, of David, you will have someone from the line, from the throne of David, who reigns literally for eternity on the throne. And so if you flip back three chapters, two chapters, if you look, we won't do it, but in Jeremiah 33, this is, you'll see this phrase, will be cut off, will not be cut off. This is the only time that I'm aware of in the entire Bible that the same language used to bless the house of David in the Davidic covenant is used for anybody else. And it's used for this small, anonymous, obedient group, the Rechabites, to say in the same language as God says to David, you will not be cut off for eternity. What does that mean? It means there's going to be someone from the line of the Rechabites. There's somebody out there right now. Like there's, there's a Rechabite out there. There's probably, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not a scientist, but biologically there's got to be a lot of them, right? Somewhere out there because the promise is, is true. Obedience, small obedience, anonymous obedience, quiet, unenlightened obedience brings the fullness of God's blessing, even the lavish, even on par with the lavish promises made to David. And of course, we can't end here without recognizing that the greater than David must display these qualities as well, insofar as Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of every Old Testament ideal. You know, the end of the Old Testament is a total cliffhanger, bad ending for the Old Testament. Nothing has been solved. And of course, in Jesus, all of, this, all of the cliffhanging storylines merge together. And he brings all of the stories to a good end. And so think about our three points. The obedience of Jesus was not heralded, was it? In fact, not only was it not praised, it was condemned. The perfect obedience of Jesus to God the Father was not just unheralded, it was condemned and spoken of as evil and ultimately given capital punishment. Secondly, Jesus didn't just hear, he listened. If you think about what Jesus said in the garden, it seems as though Jesus is given a real opportunity here to back out. I don't think this was just a play as Jesus knelt in the Garden of Eden and said, you know, not my will but yours. If there's any way, let this cup pass from me. I think Jesus is given a real opportunity here to change the ending, but he perfectly submits to God the Father. He doesn't just hear, he listens, and he says, not my will, but yours. And third, I said that uh, obedience brings lavish blessing. It does. Jesus' obedience brings lavish blessing to us, and so that we are the blessed recipients of all of the, the lavish promises that Jesus rightfully earned through his perfect obedience, forgiveness, eternity with God the Father, eternity in the presence of Christ, peace on earth, peace in the midst of trials, knowing that we don't stand condemned before God but have been forgiven, all accomplished through Christ himself. And so we see the perfect fulfillment through Christ. Obedience may be unheralded. Obedience doesn't just hear it listens, and obedience brings lavish blessing. Let's pray.